Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, and welcome to Slate's Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's culture critic, and joining me today are Katie Royfe, a cultural critic and professor at NYU, and Troy Patterson, Slate's TV critic. Hi. 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 So today we are very excited for us to discuss Gay Talese's book, Thy Neighbor's Wife, which is billed on the back as the provocative classic work, newly updated. It's his 1981 panoramic cultural history of sex in America, which concentrates mostly on the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, but goes far back in time to the sort of origins of how sex was thought of in America and Puritanism and extends to the present time as Talese is writing it. It's a really remarkable book but for a lot of reasons that I'm hoping we'll get into, one of which is that by the end of it, Talese has become both subject and observer in, in this work. And it's worth noting for those listeners who don't know that Talese, of course, was part of the kind of new journalism movement of the 60s, and we'll talk a little bit more about that and what that means and what that meant to this work in particular. But to get us started, um, Katie and Troy, what do you, this was a very controversial book when it came out, and we'll get into that too, but what do we make of this book 30-some years after its publication? What strikes you? Well, having uh, set up the question so beautifully, should we just treat that as a way to tease the reader while uh, we, we pay the bills here while I read this ad? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, in which case, <laughs> let's talk about our sponsor, Audible.com, the leading provider of spoken word entertainment on the web. We have a special offer for you, a very special offer. If you go to www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate, you can sign up for a two-week trial and get a free audiobook. And if you cancel that subscription within that period, you get to keep the book. Uh, sadly, Thy Neighbor's Wife is uh, not available on Audible, so no heavy breathing there. However, you could um, pick up Mr. Talese's recent memoir, A Writer's Life, and you can do that once again at www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. What was the question again? <laughs> I don't know if we can go back to it after having such a wonderful reading of our Audible sponsorship. So the question was, what, what do you make of the book 30-some years after its, its publication? And I suppose we should talk a little, we'll talk a little bit more about its kind of original reception. But what do you, what was your take? It's a... Uh good and it's timely and it speaks to the um, Sodom and Gomorrah that we live in now. That said, the first thing that struck me, uh, well, I guess this is like the sort of the third time I've read it. When I was like 16, I read it strictly with prurient interest. Uh, that's both of you. This was my first time, okay. so that's sort of interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, and then I read it again when I was kind of getting more 
serious about trying to become a writer. Gay Tullis being, for anyone who's not familiar with him, sort of one of the most important nonfiction writers alive. You know, he was born on the Jersey Shore to Italian immigrants in 1932 and went to the University of Alabama and then worked at the New York Times for 10 years or so. While he was there in 1959, he married his wife, Nan, who runs uh, an imprint at Doubleday. Um, now Random House. Now Random House. Yeah. Well, Doubleday. Doubleday no longer. She's all switched at Knopf. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The point is <laughs> that um, when uh, around the time that Talese was getting sick of doing, uh, bored with doing sort of straight newspaper reporting, he signed a contract with Esquire to write magazine stories, uh, the first of which is titled Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And Not the first. You sure? The first. I don't know that it was the first. The most important of which is titled Frank Sinatra <laughs> Has a Cold, in which he practices the fine art of hanging out uh, and sort of writes about Frank Sinatra without interviewing him directly. Frank um, Sinatra, right, it's a great write-around, as we call them, right? Sinatra never is sick, so he won't appear. He doesn't actually appear. Yeah. And it's fabulous. And so it's written in this sort of, like, literary way with dialogue and these point-of-view tricks, and it's sort of the touchstone for every magazine writer with uh, trying to bring some artistic aspirations to writing What's amazing is, is even when he was at the Times, he was doing really kind of revolutionary pieces even on the front page that were you know his idea was to to bring the craft of short stories and he was thinking F. Scott Fitzgerald mm. to the New York Times so he started writing pieces where he would be writing about a parade from the point of view of a tuba player who was the last person on the parade or he would be writing about a ball game and he most a lot of what he was doing early on was sports writing from the point of view and talked all about a couple having a fight and breaking off their affair and these stories ran in the in the in the times and in fact he got first hired as a copy boy and his first piece ran a week and a half after he was hired that's a remarkable uh, which is you know right. just a testimony yeah, of yeah. his ambition but he was writing pieces in the times which already in the 50s before you know Tom Wolfe Breslin you know all of these guys were really these kind of little mini classics of new journalism. Yeah. So, and Katie, you actually wrote the foreword to our new edition, which I should mention. And so, I know some of what you think about this book already from having read your foreword. But what did you? What do you think of it? And what, when did you first <coughs> read it? And have you read it many times since? I probably, I don't even remember when I first read it. I first read it when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, I now teach it to my graduate students, um, so I read it every year practically. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think, um, I really do think there are things about this book that are kind of so innovative and it's such a masterpiece of of cultural observation because I think one of the main things which I say in the introduction is that Talese decided to use character and, um, again, employing the techniques of a novelist as a way of getting at the zeitgeist. And there are a lot of books that try to capture here the spirit of the times um, and fail. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they lapse into generalization. They are they don't feel ring true. And Talisa's innovation was to go, burrow as deeply as possible into a single person, and he did this through intense, like almost unthinkable research, where he would just have conversation after conversation after conversation with somebody, to the extent that he really knew, you know, what their mother sounded like, what they felt like in their first sexual experience, all of this, in part due to his extraordinary kind of magnetism and charm as an interviewer and as a journalist, and also his obsessive researching. 
um, and created these character sketches of people like Hugh Hefner, Al Goldstein, and also people we've never heard of, um, like a couple, the Bolaros, who enter yeah. into this swinging life. And, and so it's these series of portraits that I think that idea of doing history or cultural history through character is, is a kind of revelation and is what this book, the sort of gift that this book has to offer. I was very, str- I mean, this was my first time reading it, as I said, and I was really struck by that. I, of course, knew um, that that was what Talese was known for and, and that he would have, that he was able to, to really burrow into character, but even so, the degree to which he got to know these people at certain points, I almost found myself. I actually found myself wondering: Does he possibly know this, or is he making it up? But you, but he wins your confidence, and that's a very, I think, like 2009 question to ask yourself after we've had all these various books in which people are making things up. But she, you know, he exactly as you said. I mean, the kind of way not only that he gets into each character, but his gift. He has a gift for seeing how those characters relate to tell a larger story, and that was one thing I was really struck by reading it for the first time was how Hugh Hefner related to the story of you know how he ends up feeling connected to the story of Diane Weber who's this kind of nude model we start the the book starts out with someone who's obsessed with her right um and that was sort of what I was on about in saying how I was struck by the sort of the the construction of the thing to to back up a bit so mm-hmm. this is a book about the sexual revolution and about sexual liberation in America that sort of focuses primarily on sort of a, a sex commune in Southern California called the Sandstone Retreat uh, it spends a lot of time talking about publishers and pornographers and court decisions related to obscenity and then from Anthony Comstock I mean even actually before Anthony Comstock on right, right. In, in going into the to Charles Keating and the report and everything. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. Um, and then another main thread is about sort of the, the mainstreaming of pornography. And yeah, it goes towards the sort of how great he is at sort of making these linkages, both in the way he puts them together on the page and sort of the depth of the reporting and his kind of like willingness to get lucky. The first scene, which is remarkable, is about this kid in Chicago named Harold Rubin, who's just picked up a magazine with a, a photograph of a model named Diane Weber, whose life we explore in the second chapter. And, you know, by the third chapter, in the third chapter, we're seeing uh, Hugh Hefner kind of looking at her photos for considering them for Playboy magazine. Uh, and the book kind of, it sort of like spirals around and links back. And it's part of the structural beauty of it. From the beginning, this kind of like solitary scene of this kid uh, abusing himself to this uh, photo that kind of opens up to this panorama about sort of American life and morality. Yeah, it's also bracketed by nudity, the 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 whole book. It starts with, um, I think the very first line was something like, she was nude lying on a beach, or, yeah, she was completely nude lying on her stomach in the desert sand, her legs spread wide, her long hair flowing in the wind, her head tilted back with her eyes closed. And that's a description of Diane Weber, and it closes actually with Talese himself standing nude, at an, at a, in another kind of commune, um, actually in New Jersey near where he grew up, remarkably. It's a total surprise when you get to that because, of course, that's been, we don't hear anything about that sort of very local interest until um, then. And he's standing nude looking out at people looking at him. And it's, as you say, another element, I think, of the structural beauty of the book that then we become some of those people too because 
there's something very knowing about that last scene. I think very knowing about how this book would be read by prurient sixteen year old you know sixteen year olds reading it with prurient interest, even though it's also it's tr- it's trying to be history, but it's entangled inevitably with these very complicated things about sex. Troy, what did you what what do you think makes the books I mean other than the structure, what else makes it so effective? Well, it always helps to have sexy material, and I don't know what's sexier than sex. In that respect, what what makes it work is that he's both, uh, you know, he's not um, sort of delicate in his handling of these matters. And in fact, sitting here talking about this, I'm trying to, I don't know, my mother might be listening, so I... Right. I, 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 <laughs> I know, I was thinking I, about I this before, to, and I was like, how are we going to talk about this? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So the way I, you I, can't talk about it, you right, have to right, read right. it. Right, 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 because kind of like using clinical language and euphemisms totally. is We're contrary. We're also in a very antiseptic room, I have to point out, right, yeah. Um, <laughs> using clinical language and euphemisms <laughs> is kind of contrary to the project, which yeah. is, you know, he achieves this voice that's at once, you know, it's frank, and it can be sort of lyrical, but generally not too much so. There are a couple sort of he-entered-her passages that are uh, squeamish-making. So it's frank and it's lyrical, um, uh, but he also has a a fine way of kind of shading from this sort of first-person reportage into, you know, some clear considerations of, of, like, court decisions. And then finding convenient ways to sort of get back out again. It's, it's partly that, for instance, when he's discussing these court decisions, he finds a way to kind of bring in the lives of these judges and justices in, uh, in a way that's interesting and compelling without being yeah. sort of plainly salacious or gratuitous. I just, you know, I mean, I, as you say this, I'm thinking you're, you're right. And it's, it's hard to describe this book because it's so capacious and it's really remarkable. I mean, one thing I was so struck by was the fact that we are getting these long historical passages about, about Comstock and about, you know, New England history and law. There's quite a lot of legal history in this book, but he's able to move from that into describing, as you say, these, you know, swingers in the 1970s kind of going into um, sandstone and having sex. And there's very very explicit descriptions of sex and orgies, which, as we've talked about elsewhere on this book club, is extremely hard. Sex is something that's extremely hard to write about. Um, and he does do that for quite a, a lot of this book. And he also, those are two such different registers, and he finds a way of making them feel like they're all part of one book. And and that was something I didn't anticipate. I thought the book was going to be much more the sort of just the story of somewhere like Sandstone and, you know, much more kind of voyeuristic, here's how pe- what people's sex lives are like. And I did not anticipate that that ability he has to be truly panoramic in the way that he tells the story, but not to remain at that kind of helicopter level of looking at it. He really gets involved in more ways than one, which is something that we should talk about. Yeah, and I I mean, I think one answer to how he does that is the structure, which is really simple and kind of beautifully simple here, which is every section ends with a reference to somebody and the next section begins with that person. So it's almost gimmicky. It's so simple. It's almost like too much, this structure, um, in the kind of sort of perfection of it. And yet what it does do is it, it integrates the more historical passages with the modern portraits and puts it all together and kind of um, I think these bridges that he built, which are actually put, he put a ton of effort and craft into, but feel effortless, 
go a long way to making it feel like one portrait of the whole country. I have to say, as a, as a writer, the writer in me became totally horrified at moments thinking about how difficult it must have been to write this book, just like how hard it must be. I kept thinking, how did he assemble this material? How did he structure it? And then he actually has a very funny line at the end, toward the end where he talks about the panic he felt at not knowing how to assemble all of this material, and you think, yeah. okay, he's human after all. Right. Well, you know? he spent 10 years doing it, right. and then there are also these kind of... Uh, stories, uh, I don't know if they're apocryphal or sort of self-mythologizing all of them, about how careful Gatewise is with his prose, that he'll kind of like pin paragraphs up across the room and squint at them through binoculars. Yes, and he works apparently in the basement of the brownstone that he and Nan share, and there's no window or noise, you know, like nothing. Well, you've probably been there, Katie. Yes, you interviewed yes. him. Is it true there. that there's no window or noise, that it's yes. utterly... It's, it's an underground bunker. He calls it the bunker. Wow. Um, and he does. You know, he has the styrofoam board where he pins everything up. And I mean, he actually said to me, I did an interview, as you say, with him for the Paris review that he never writes more than one page a day because he's really reworking and reworking and reworking. <laughs> wow. And it's kind of amazing when you think about how long these books are. But, you know, and I said, come on, there must be some days where you are just you in the middle of something and you, <laughs> and you get going and you write more than one page. And he said, no. You know, and he doesn't use the computer. He's, you know, he writes it out wow. longhand and then he types it up. He does use the computer to type it up, but he uses his computer like a typewriter. Right. Um, because he doesn't, he doesn't want, and he said, you know, he doesn't want to write as fast as a computer enables you to write. He thinks that that's bad for your writing. He wants to spend that time on every sentence. And I think I don't think it's really self-mythologizing. Right. Um, because he's not really, I, I think the, that the, he's such a larger-than-life personality that doesn't need to self-mythologize, right. that this is really the way he goes about things. And, you know, these nine years, ten years that he spends on a book are, you know, to, to any journalist they're almost pathological, and the extent to which he immerses himself, and I think we should talk about this kind of immersion journalism that and how involved he gets in his subjects, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's the mafia, whether it's right, sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, most journalists would draw the line. You know, there's right. their life, and then there's the life of their subjects, and he does not do that. Right. And I think one of the reasons that his work is often greeted with um, suspicion you know, and he is in a weird position of being both legendary and also highly attacked. Mm-hmm. His books get this kind of vitriolic review that is com- somewhat surprising, even though they're beloved and popular and sell lots of copies and mm-hmm. and are sort of well thought of. And it's a kind of interesting paradox. But I think other journalists, other writers, other critics ha- have the response of, what are you doing? You know, this mm-hmm. is madness. And mm-hmm. it is borderline madness. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, with this book, I, but long before I ever read the book, I read a New York Magazine article that had appeared, I think, before the book came out. Mm-hmm. Which many Talese, years before. Many years. It was 72 or 73. 72, yeah. Right. Okay, so many years before. And Talese actually refers to this article at the end of this book, which I was completely not expecting either. And the article is basically tries to kind of do to Talese what Talese is doing to all these other people, which is to say it follows him around as he's doing his research on the book and then writes about him. And of course, one thing we should mention is that his research for this book doesn't include just getting to know these people and interviewing them, but... Oh, he gets I, to know them. Well, he does. <laughs> he gets to know them in maybe more than in the biblical sense as well, right? So it's it's he actually worked as a manager at a massage parlor. He went to Sandstone as a guest. He you know, was part of the orgies that would take place. He, you know, he has a knowledge, you know, his, and his ideas, as Katie said, this immersion journalism, that you have to experience some of what you're writing about to know it very well. And, you know, 
perhaps unsurprisingly, there was a lot of controversy about this, and I think especially after the New York Magazine article, which is very snide and kind of makes him into something of an object of ridicule. And it's really interesting to read the book because you think... I thought that there was me much more of Talise's involvement early on. And it's really only till we get to this funny little section at the very end that he starts to write about himself. And he does it in a very odd way. And he does it in a third person, which is a very sort of new journalism thing. You can see Norman Mailer doing it. Mailer yeah. does. You know, which was a deliberate choice on his part to appear as a character, not to use an eye, because um, he felt that an eye would be misleading. He felt that the actual clearest way to represent his role was to use the third person, and in part because of his detachment from the subject, in part because he's always observing, writing, taking notes, and to signal that, um, you know, there's always one part of him who's the writer, who's, you know, watching as if, like, standing on the ceiling, you know, fly on the wall taking notes. And um, and he wanted to put write that detachment into the book, and the and the the um, trope or the the um, technique he chose to do that is this strange third person, which does you know it's a little jarring when you read it now because he suddenly talks about Talisa's marriage mm-hmm. um, crisis over the New York Magazine article, but it is I think a very deliberate stylistic choice. What did you think, Troy? What do you think of that section of the book? I don't see how else you could wrap this up and. Mm-hmm. You know, in this kind of in Armies of the Night, when you know Mailer from the first paragraph is Mailer and mm-hmm. sort of a constant presence, that's kind of like a different kind of project. Which that's requires, what I thought. That's sort of more what I was expecting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, right. It's a very different. In this case, if he'd been in here, it just would have been a jumble. If he, it, it, it wouldn't have worked structurally at all if he'd been a constant presence. But yet, it this book wouldn't have been sort of satisfying if he sort of never appeared at all. Um, and so his coming on in this coda, it's a good choice. <laughs> it's really interesting. At first I reacted negatively to it, I have to say, because it starts very suddenly. It's not even at the beginning of a chapter. It's mid-chapter. It's, it's very interesting. I actually like that he doesn't. I was expecting that, okay, there will be a chapter will start and suddenly we'll be at Gay Talese, the way that we get Hefner, the way that we get Comstock, the way that we get so many of these different characters from, you know, the anthropologist Sally Binford to John Williamson, who starts Sandstone. But we just move suddenly to Tilly's, and it's a very short section, actually, comparatively, where he talks about himself. And at first, there was a quality of defensiveness there that put me off a little bit, you know. And in fact, he starts by getting right into the controversy around him. And actually, here, I'll just read the passage where... He comes in. He's he he enters because he's a speaker at Sandstone, and then he so he tells us that um, the second featured speaker of the day, a writer from New York named Gay Talese, who was researching a book about sex in America for Doubleday and Company, a lean, dark-eyed man of forty-three whose brown hair was beginning to turn gray. Talese was not entirely a stranger to the people in the room. He had visited Sandstone often in the past, including its ballroom, and his book in progress had already received inordinate amounts of publicity in many newspapers and magazines. Most of what had been written about Talese in the press, however, had been jocularly presented, strongly suggesting that his reportorial technique as a, quote, participating observer end quote, in the world of erotica, his patronage of massage parlors, his dark afternoons and X-rated cinemas, his intimate familiarity with swing clubs and orgiasts across the land, was an ingenious ploy on his part to indulge his carnality and to be unfaithful to his wife while justifying it in the name of sexual, quote, research. 
And it's just very striking, I think, that he begins right with that, um, that very point. And at first I thought, wow, he's just going straight to this sort of defensiveness. He, he's doing this in order to defend himself. And then I thought, no. You know, by the end, it seemed to me this is an extremely brilliant and also, as Troy, you were saying, necessary part of the book because the book is about the large shifts in sexuality in America and the title changes that happen, but it's also about these extremely local, and Katie, you get at this in your introduction, just these extremely local conflicts between you know, jealousy, intimacy, marriage, you know, possessiveness, and how, how you can have a kind of um, superstructure for them in your brain, and you can, have, you can tell yourself you believe one thing or are capable of one thing, and then the reality is very different, um, whether the, whether what you're telling yourself is that you'll be faithful to your wife forever or whether you're telling yourself it's fine with me if she has sex with another man in, you know, at Sandstone. And one of the things we see is how so many of these people get sucked into dramas where they are defensive, where they're confused. And so I, th- I ended up thinking it was kind of brilliant. Yeah, and he actually does go into the detail where he... The New York Magazine reporter comes to interview him, and Nan, his wife, leaves a letter, an envelope, which he receives while he's being interviewed that says that she's left for some short period of time. She's not really leaving, but, you know, he doesn't know um, how long she's left for because she's so enraged by this. And so it is, you know, he is showing the how this moment in history acts on even his own marriage. And I think... Um, yeah, to me, it's part of the um, honesty of the book and, and the kind of thoroughness that he's generally showing here that he's not exempted. He doesn't rise above it. He's not no. the invisible narrator. He is going to show how he's going to channel all of this chaos, you know, of this period of time through yeah. his own life. It's really interesting, though, because I think one thing that keeps the book feeling fresh is that the, it is the, you know, he is he's right. I mean, one of the reasons he says he's going to write is that it's, he says it seems to him there is a huge cultural shift happening around him and that, you know, people had once been secretive about sex, suddenly now right. we're mm-hmm. seeing it everywhere. Right? I was actually, there, there was um, a paragraph from the sort of same <clears throat> speech and monologue that you were read from before that I was going to read. Great. Mostly to get us on track to talking about what this book is actually about, as we're uh, apparently so uptight this afternoon that we're having trouble <laughs> addressing it. Um, and so it's here on... <laughs> It's here on page 524 in this handsome paperback edition. Uh, he's sort of contrasting the world of the sort of 50s and 60s with the rigid moral atmosphere of the 1930s and 40s. And he writes, uh, Suddenly in the late 1950s and early 60s, or so it seemed to him, the men's magazines had come up from under the counter, erotic novels were no longer outlawed, nudity appeared in Hollywood films, and these changes were not only evident in the larger cities through which he traveled as a newspaper reporter and freelance writer, but also in conservative places like his hometown, which he regularly visited. And in 1971, while he was contemplating possible subjects for his next book, he decided that what most intrigued him was America's new openness about sex, its expanding erotic consumerism, and the quiet rebellion that he sensed within the middle class against the censors and the clerics that had been an inhibiting force since the founding of the Puritan Republic. Yeah, so that's what the book is about. Uh, it's about people sort of exploring open marriages and about sort of the, the, the sort of the struggle for both merchants of literature and of smut to have their work seen and read and bought. It's a book about desire. I mean, it's just a book where people are talking about desire all the time and sexual desire. I mean, yeah, and a book about sort of 
the shift in, in standards of sexual morality. And, I mean, um, as he said, he also said, you know, at that time a lot of young writers were wanting to be foreign correspondents and foreign reporters, and he thought to himself, wait, we're living in a foreign country right now. Our own country is a foreign country. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, which I think is a kind of interesting because it's true. You know, here's this moment of extreme transformation. Yeah. Um, that he's interested in, you know, writing about in this anthropological way as if he's in this new world. Yeah. My question <laughs> is, how did this whole... Uh, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that this whole sexual liberation thing has, like, worked out perfectly. Yeah, so we should talk about that. That was going to be... That was what I... Yes, that was what I was driving at when I started to bring up this quote from... Um, when I start to say it's about a particular time, what what do you yeah? So tell us more, Troy. I don't. I mean, look, I'm a I'm a modern guy, but uh, <laughs> there aren't any sort of standards We're of decency. We're moving the barroom part of the conversation you know, here. <laughs> Gay Talese's uh, his great peer, uh, Tom Wolf, in his last collection, which is called Hooking Up, he's got a section in the. Um, in the introduction where he counts, he's for him sort of like the. the the great prophet is Friedrich Nietzsche for saying, like, God is dead, which is sort of like an obituary. And Nietzsche thought that in the uh, in the 20th century there would be these kind of, like, great wars fought over ideology, uh, and that then there would come, near the end of the 20th century, the total eclipse of all values. And that is what we're living in. I think it's a very fine thing that um, the state and sort of uh, an omnipotent church doesn't sort of dictate what people do with their with their lives and certainly no one would want to live in America where sort of um, you know these kinds of sort of uh, sexual discrimination and moral codes are written into the law and yet on on the other hand there is (laughs) there is no decency which I guess is sort of a yeah yeah well, Which is it, a price you pay for freedom, I guess. That's what the book's about. It. Uh, it's the point being the but price I think you pay that for there's freedom. been a reaction against this world that he's describing. I think there is a more conservative element now. Well, I think maybe that's true, but I do. Th- I, I, th- I also think. I mean, for example, a specific iteration of the sexual liberation has gone. That the sort of commune living that that is not as popular right now. I think it's less part of the zeitgeist. But other things have replaced it. You know, and you think about kind of internet the advent porn. of internet porn, for example. Yeah, that was going to be what I was thinking of. But, you know, it is interesting. I mean, I was th- that's the question. I-, I think this book is a very challenging book, and I think one reason it will never be dated, even though it's about a particular time, is the questions it raises are not uh, limited to the struggles of that moment in time. They're framed slightly differently for us, maybe, but they're not all that different, which... Or I felt they weren't all that different. Troy, you're looking like maybe you disagree. No, no that wasn't the look of that disagreement. That wasn't the look of disagreement. That was the look of thought. Flitting the eyes around as I turned the question over. Yeah. You know, I mean, because one thing that's just extraordinary about reading the book is realizing how, and I just, I knew this, but I didn't know it. You know, you don't really, you don't know it viscerally. How, just how hard, I mean, just, the, you know, all this stuff about Lady Chatterley's, I mean, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name of Love. um, Lover. I was going to say later, Ch- Lady Charlie's wife, and I was like, that's a different erotic <laughs> that's novel. A um, but, uh, you know, just how, you know, how many people were jailed for things that seemed to us, you know, 
not remotely shocking. Um, that and how recent that was. I mean, how closely that butted up against this huge shift in values. And that's one of the really striking things about the book. But I want to go back to Troy's question about decency now and whether we don't do or don't live in a time of. Because I think that um, it's true that while some of this stuff has passed and there's been a backlash, there was a kind of opening up of the sec- of sexual discourse and of permissiveness that seems to me that it is still with us and maybe even with us in a, in a more extreme way than it was. Well, I think the conflict is eternal, like that, that conflict between tradition and puritanical ideas and, you know, traditional ways of doing things and, you know, the intrigue or obsession that we have in this country with um, sex and promiscuity and freshness and novelty. Um, I do think it's a little different now because affairs or... Um, you know, especially once you're married, and he's really talking about open marriages, that kind of thing, um, are not that acceptable these days, um, I don't think. I mean, I have a friend who has an arrangement with her husband where one of them, if they, if either one of them goes away, they can have an affair and it's okay. Yeah, I've, heard the, I've heard of these arrangements. Now, yeah. but, but everybody's shocked and scandalized and bewildered and, right. you know, horrified by this. And it's not totally acceptable. It's not the way most people run their marriages. It's right. not now considered totally par for the course or, you know, when I think affairs now are back to being affairs, you know, more underground, secret. And yet uh, research will show or studies show us that, you know, I would say plurality of people commit adultery at some point in their in their adult in their adult lives. I mean, to go back to Troy, what you were saying about, you know, you said something like freedom, the lack of decency is the price we pay for freedom. And that being the point of the book. Am I quoting you somewhat accurately? Uh, somewhat. I might have clumsily constructed the sentence in an attempt to regrasp an idea earlier right. that what sort of you, the it's almost unspoken. The idea uniting the book is that it's a book about freedom, and that's yeah. what the court decisions are about. And personal freedom is what these sort of experiments in postmodern sexuality are about. Yeah, and I mean, I guess one thing. I, that I'm sort of circling around is that there was a there's a moment early on and it, it's sort of funny because I think the book kind of replicates like I feel like I went through the 1950s the 1960s the 1970s and finally verged on the 80s as I was reading the book because there was a moment early on where he's talking about in particular I thought the story of John and Judith Bolaro was really amazing and he's talking about how John Bolaro is this guy who works at a New York trust which is an insurance company and he is asked you know he's kind of the traditional gray man in the gray flannel suit of the 50s but he has these longings he feels a little bit burdened by conventionality and he starts having affairs and then he and his wife end up getting drawn in through the affairs that he has to sandstone and the nudist open marriage community and you know if there's a moment where you're reading about what they're trying to do where you think wow this makes so much more sense than the possessiveness of marriage which doesn't work at all today and you know you kind of start to think there is something you know if you could do this this would be a better way of living and then you know everything falls apart around them and everyone gets jealous and things fall apart marriages end and this that and the other and i guess the point being that that uncertainty seems as that that the trouble with freedom, um, the damage that comes with seeking freedom, seems to be one of the things that Talese is writing about. Yeah, yeah, I do, and it, it's also about kind of the proper way to handle freedom. At, you know, at least in in monogamy, with the kind of giving up your autonomy, you know where you stand, and these sort of right. alternatives to it are, although they perhaps have their advantages, are a bit. Uh, uh, hazier and more confusing. 
It's interesting. On Double X, which is the sister site to Slate that I help run, we were just having a debate about um, a piece that Sandra Singh Lowe wrote in the Atlantic Monthly about why she's getting divorced from her husband. And in the response to this piece, which is a little bit arch, um, I think one of the things that, that I started to think about, and Katie, this goes back to your point about a slight conventionalism of where we are today versus the 1970s, was that we have returned to idealizing marriage, but we, we idealize it as this companionate, the so-called companionate marriage of kind of equality and openness. But it is in its way almost as idealized an institution as probably a slightly different kind of marriage in the 1950s was. And reading this book also made me think a lot about that and I don't have any answers. I feel like I need to have like a very interesting <coughs> conclusion, but I don't. Well, it's, also, it's a I very mean, like but also, unsettling I think it's book. It's important to say there are periods in history yeah. where people believe, you know, and I would also point to the 1910s and 1920s, you know, as another such period um, where groups of bohemians and artists and other people um, are thinking that they can have open marriages and it's a more um, kind of public idea, um, these experiments in relationships. And um, always the idea is that you can rationally control your emotions. You can control emotions like jealousy and, you know, possessiveness and anger and all those kind of emotions. And that in the end, it's a sort of, it's almost, it's this utopian faith in the ability to be reasonable, to be rational. With Vanessa Bell um, in Bloomsbury, uh, Roger Fry describes her household with its, you know, where she's living with a lover and his gay lover and her husband's visiting every now and then. And he calls it a triumph of rationality over the conventions and in the end, I think what each of these moments kind of show is that rationality doesn't triumph over either the conventions or the emotions, um, and that we kind of come up against that. And in, in 1972, there was a classic, the big bestseller of the period was Open Marriage by Georgia Nina O'Neill, which actually didn't have a huge amount on open marriage sexually, but it was about, you know, it was sort of the classic about open marriage. And, um, and Nina O'Neill recanted, you know, years later. Um, because she said, you know, she received so many letters about marriages being ruined, and she decided that sexual fidelity is actually an important part of marriage. Um, and I think that that a lot of people retreated from this kind of utopian vision of human behavior and, you know, mm. the ability to control emotions. It's really interesting, as you say that, I think that that really, you know, it's one thing that's fascinating about the book is it does show how that rationalism falls apart in the utopian communities, as you're saying, but also how it falls apart when there are several characters here who become extremely threatened by the presence of smut shops and find themselves, there's one character in particular um, who ends up working with Keating, what's his name, uh, and um, he is standing in front of a shop that has, you know, kind of all sorts of sex toys and he starts to find himself getting aroused and he is extremely troubled by it, so he writes to you know the government, and they start to, they start cracking down on that shop, and he gets very involved in the Nixon and the and Charles Keating's attempts to kind of crack down on the spread of men's magazines and porn and the sex, the general sexualization of the culture, and that's as much about an attempt to rationally control emotions as these other men, the sort of opposite mm -hmm. impulse is. And both fail. Right. Right? Both, but, everyone fail. I mean, this is a story of failure, too, right? The failure kind of, of reason over, over desire. Yeah, you do point toward one of the other themes in the book is that the censors here and the scolds are all these sort of tough, paternalistic figures. And 
all of the all the heroes of the book are sort of the sons of these sort of hard, difficult fathers who are reacting against them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true. That's all. Yeah. He does talk about women, too. I mean, he actually writes very well about women, I think, in the book. He writes about Hefner's girlfriend in Chicago. He writes about Judith Bolaro, John's wife, I think very sensitively and interestingly. Which is interesting because when the book came out, there was a huge feminist objection to it. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I agree with you. I think he really I think does he enter into the psychology well of the women. women. Yeah. But um, at the time, you know, there were feminists in Penn who were opposing his becoming president of Penn based on this book. And there was a kind of politically correct reaction against it, which I think is kind of interesting. Because yeah. when you look at what this book actually does and actually is, it seems totally unjustified. Yeah. This reminds me that actually one of the most interesting characters in the book, and I wish that I'd, there were more here to read about her, is Betty Dodson. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is sort of New York artist who... Um, Cunt positive is her own term for for what she does in her, her work and in the sort of writing and sort of social organizing that she does. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I thought she was really fascinating. Um, and we get to her near the end. But there are women sprinkled throughout who are very interesting, and he writes. Well, we should bring this to a close, but should we talk for one moment before we do about the reception to this book? I mean, Talese, there was actually another article in New York Magazine recently about Talese and his wife on the... Which was awesome. Which was awesome, and which was the subject of much gossip at various dinner parties and cocktail I think you actually told me to read it, Troy. Or maybe it was our friend Laura Kipnis, um, who also writes for Slate. But it was, I read it after we talked about it, and it was really interesting. And part of it, part of it is him talking about how, after this book, it was extremely difficult for him to write for many many years and that in some ways he felt that this book and the reception of it ruined his ability to write yeah yeah I, I can imagine how this project would inspire burnout especially with this you know the kind of emotional uh, havoc it, it causes on the other hand he made a lot of money with this book <laughs> Carl Hyacin once told me that the thing about being a newspaper writer, you can't get writer's block because then you have unemployment block. Uh, <laughs> when you've <laughs> made millions of dollars off a book and own your own townhouse, then uh, right, it might be a little harder to get motivated. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, but I think that, I mean, when you read the reviews, and, and you know, he, in Talisa's mind, the reviews started with that New York Magazine profile in the early 70s, um, which was so nasty and kind of set the tone. And John Leonard in Playboy wrote one of the... They sort of wrote an early review that jumped the pub date. And incredibly scathing and mean. And the reviews were very personal. And they were like, why doesn't Gay Talese take a shower? Mm. Um, And really nasty. And and completely didn't take the book on the terms that we're discussing it now. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in its larger ambitions. And only saw it as just this sort of excuse to run around um, for this one married man. And I think that... Uh, Which is interesting because it's a way of kind of distancing yourself from the way that the book... Impl- I feel like the book implicates the reader in all sorts of messy things. And that's like a way of distancing yourself. And actually, I think, you know, Talese, impl- he very clearly implicates himself at the end in a way that, to me, is odd, but but makes me not feel that I would level those charges against him were I reviewing the book. But what is he exactly implicating himself in? Good question. I thought he was implicating himself in the complexity of this, like the fact that there is this interest, this sense of being compelled to explore sexuality in various ways that is messy 
right? And he impli- he writes about how Nan leaves him. I mean, he's implicating himself in by describing the messiness that came along with writing the book, which <coughs> is the same kind of messiness that almost all of these characters who get involved in open marriage or the different com- you know that they they just experience messiness as you say like monogamy has its problems but it comes with very clear the problems are very clear and by messiness I'm not judging this I'm just saying like it's, right. it's one thing he does show is that when you move outside of this very clear institution of marriage and monogamy it gets complicated and he also doesn't yeah. and this is one of the things he was criticized for um, even in books like Honor Thy Father about the mafia, which is not taking a, a moral stand. Right. And he very adamantly does not take a moral stand here. And he very adamantly in, thy neighbor, in Honor Thy Father doesn't take a moral stand. moral stand. And I think that's something that people find unsettling and unsatisfying. And, and you know, the, the puritanical legacy that he's writing about here is very powerful. And it's not just very powerful in things like the Supreme Court, it's also very powerful in the living room and the study of the critic and reviewer for the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he really came up against, and I think the fierceness, the response of the book, to me, is a sign of its success. The fact that people got so angry about this book and took it so personally and got so enraged, in a way, is part of the power of the book. And that if you have a book that doesn't work, people are, you know, they don't have that kind of um, strength of response. I think he does take a moral stand against Puritanism, and I think that the mm-hmm. way that the passages about Comstock and about Keating and about Nixon are set what up I mean is he is doesn't take a moral the- stand against all this craziness that's going on. You know, he talks right. as Megan revolution. said, he talks about the complexity. I mean, the Bolero's marriage is mess; it falls apart. He writes about that clearly. He's not yeah. taking but a stand saying open yes, marriage no. is necessarily right. the answer right. and solution. But he's think, taking a much right. more complicated portrait. Well, right. Right. But I, th- maybe but I that's- think you're right that there is an anti-Puritan strain here. Yeah. A critique of Puritanism. You know, yeah. and we're talking about somebody who, you know, went to Catholic schools and all of that and right. you know, is responding against there that kind of morality. There is one line where he talks about how a lot of the people who are prosecuting um, you know, obscenity charges, you know. There is one line that I, I'm not going to be able to find it right now where he does say something about how they were all basically have their own issues with he's basically implying that they all just have their own uptight issues with sex and this is how they're right. kind of working through them. Right. You know, and the other I think it's also possible that the uh, the moral stand is that the problems with open relationships are not ethical but logistic. Mm-hmm. My own thought of the subject was it Winston Churchill said about democracy that it's the the worst form of government except for all the other kinds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a sort of the same thing goes for monogamy. Mm-hmm. 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 Sure. Well, on that note. Troy and Katie, thank you for doing this with me today. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us. For Slate.com, I'm Megan O'Rourke, and we hope you'll join us for the next audiobook club. Slate's The Audio Book Club now comes to you on the third Thursday of every month. Our selection for August is the controversial new book, A Vindication of Love, by Christina Neering. Listen for our discussion of A Vindication of Love, coming to the podcast on August 20th, 2009.